Let's stand uh, for the reading of the scriptures. We're up in Nehemiah chapter 1. We want to go from verse 4 to the end of the chapter. We will finish today. I will be a while too. I'm just letting y'all know that today. I'm going to be a while because we need to get through all of this. I can't break this up because it won't make sense if I do. So we got we to preach this entire text in its entirety. Are y'all okay with that? All right. Verse 4. Let's, let, let's, it reads here, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O oh Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel with which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept your commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you disperse, you're, you're dispersed, be under the farthest skies. I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive in the, uh, to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was a cupbearer to the king. You may be seated. Um, we're, we're in our new series on Nehemiah, and this series is really, I think, a great landmark for us as a ministry as we are seeking to become more of a tight-knit community of people and to serve God in this city. Um, many a dream every person has in their heart. Many of us have many a dream and many a passion to see things happen. Many of us have dreams that are unified with the heart of God, and some of our dreams are disunified from the heart of God. However, our desire is to have dreams that reflect God's passion for his glory to be seen on planet Earth. We were created for his glory. We were created for his purposes, and each believer is uniquely set apart for the divine purpose of doing that both individually and collectively. Last week, if you remember, we went through the corpus of redemptive history, working through how God has been working through the people of God up to this point in Nehemiah. The church, as we understand it, is an extension of God's redemptive work in changing society, in changing time from eternity through his people. And, 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 and so, and so we, we, we park here in history 
in Nehemiah to see how God was active. And every time you park to look at how God is active in any section of Scripture, you're looking at how Jesus is being pictured there. Because all Scripture is really about him. And since everything in the Scripture is based on what he says is about him, we must see how he's pictured there with being faithful to the exegetical and expositional and hermeneutical responsibilities that God has given us in the text. So, so we dive in here and Nehemiah, we're in the second temple period. And in the second temple period, it's post all that the people of God went through because they wigged out on God uh, by way of recap, because they wigged out on God um, um, and committed idolatry and forsook him, he gave him a whooping. And that whooping was putting them up in Babylon and um, up under uh, uh, P- Persian captivity. Now, on the back end of that, they're in this Persian captivity, and God has caused the whipping to cease. I don't know if you ever had a whooping that you wish was over. And as soon as it got over, you took a deep breath. Amen, somebody. That's for us who got spankers, not time out. I'm talking about beat downs. All right? Um, 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 um. And so, and so when, when it was over, you took a breather. But even though you took a breather, even though you got a whooping, there were still consequences of your sin many times you had to look at. And so Nehemiah is looking at the consequences of the people of God's sin by the city being broken down of Jerusalem and representation of God not being uh, able to be uh, uh, as as powerful um, as it could be. And so he's heard the news from one of his brothers that came down with some cats from Jerusalem. They came down, chopped it up with him. He said, how my peeps doing? They said, it's whacking Jerusalem and we in a bad place. My man breaks down and he's crying and weeping and mourning for four months. But what's interesting is that he didn't go out and he didn't cuss, he didn't fuss, he didn't gossip, he didn't slander. He, he did the best thing that he could do. He did the most powerful thing that he can do. He prayed. I, I, I don't know about you, but there are times in my life where if I would have shut my mouth to man and opened my mouth to God, it would have changed the situation and my disposition. So what prayer is, is prayer is not our dictation of our will to God. Prayer is our alignment with his. Prayer is submission to the sovereignty of God for God to release from heaven on earth what he already decided, but he only does it through prayer. And so God uses prayer to release and respond and react on planet earth. Man doesn't twist God's arm. Man doesn't make God do anything. Prayer is the interpersonal, in-depth interaction between his covenant people and himself as they enjoy him and want to see him active on planet earth. And so, and, so, and so our series is on being rebuilt to build. Say rebuilt to build. Again, rebuilt to build. Third time, rebuilt to build. Now today, our message is going to be under that topic, rebuilt through an encounter with God. Rebuilt through an encounter with God. Let me tell you something. There is no rebuilding in your life that's ever going to happen unless you encounter him. Uh, uh, You you, you need a move from God in your life. Everybody does. I don't care how good your bank account looks. 
I don't care how bad things look. I don't care how good your grades are. Somebody needs a move of God on their life. But it's interesting that the move and encounter with God that Nehemiah is having is not an encounter with God for himself alone. I wish I had some help. But, 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 but he's trying to, and he wants for there to be a unified community encounter with God with God's people. His encounter with God is for others. And so here in this text, which brings us to our first point, if you're going to be rebuilt through encountering God, you've got to rebuild through encountering God by recognizing who he is. You've got to first recognize who he is. Now look at, look at, look at verse 5, right? He says, and, and I said, O Lord God of heaven. Stop right there. That's good right there. Because it's interesting that he's in a rugged circumstance. The walls of Jerusalem are all broken down. And, and usually when I'm going through something difficult, Pastor Larry, I don't say, oh, God of heaven. Sometimes I'll just say, help. You know, sometimes I'll just say, God, I'm sick of. Uh, y'all ain't never said that. I'm by myself. God, I'm tired of. But it's interesting that he's mourning and he's broken. He's fasting for four months here. This is his prayer and disposition for four months. And, 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 this, is, and this is what he says. He says, oh, God of heaven. That, that's a beautiful statement to make. Because what he's doing is he's focusing on the eminence of God. I mean, the transcendence of God. The transcendence of God is the fact that the heavens are his footstool. Matter of fact, uh, uh, um, the old preacher would say he, he sits high, but he looks Low. That's, his tra- that's the theology of transcendence that even the old school preacher understood. In, in, in other words, he's too high to what? Get over. He's too wide to get. So, so he's transcendent. That means he's above and beyond all circumstance. But all circumstance aren't above him. So what Nehemiah is doing is he's posturing his heart to be reminded of the sovereignty of God over all creation. Now, saying sovereignty of God means God's comprehensive rule over everything. God is the big boss. Rick Rouse ain't. All right? So he's basically announcing that he's the boss. And that, that's, that should be all. We should make that up. When we get to heaven, we should say, you the boss. Go up to God. You the boss. You the boss. You the boss. You the boss. That's what we need to do. He the boss. That's what he's saying here. Oh, Lord of heaven, you the, yeah, huh, yeah. And then go like that, huh? <laughs> I like, that's, a, that's just a mass. I, I know it's secular, but that's just like a masculine husky dude thing. Huh? I like that, right? But, but he's saying God of heaven because he's putting his mind beyond his circumstance. In prayer, you must do that. He's trying to get his mind beyond his own brokenness because if he focuses his mind on his brokenness, he'll stay in it. But if he zooms in on the God of heaven, he'll get beyond it. So what he does is is he does what we should do in the New Testament based on Colossians 3 verse 1. It says, keep your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And it says our identity is hidden where? With Christ and God. In other words, so he's getting his mind right. He's getting his mind right. See, see, I don't care where you are in your circumstance. You better look at the God over it. Transcends everything. Because he knows that he's been under an earthly king. 
He knows he's been on the early boss, but he said, I got to talk to the one who runs everything. I, I know that, that Wu-Tang said cash rules everything around me, but my man here is saying God rules everything around me. Yeah, that's what he's saying. He's trying, to, he's, trying to, he, he's trying to get his heart postured heavenward because he knows that heavenly posturing means earthly transformation. And if anything in our lives are going to be changed, anything in our city is going to be changed. Because remember, a city in the Bible first is the people of God. You are a city on a hill, talking about people, not Jerusalem. So, 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 so this is very, very important that we want God, we want all of the people of God to be pointed heavenward. That's why when we sing these songs, we sing heavenward songs. Not he woke me up this morning to stop me on my way. Every song. Now, that's okay sometime, but, you, but, that, but, but we got to point to the one who's above and beyond all things. The God of heaven who runs everything, looks down and intimately sees every intricate detail of planet Earth and is under the ability to control and not be controlled by any circumstance. So he had to, he knew that he was crippled and paralyzed and needed help from on high to help him in this situation. So he says, the God of heaven, he says, oh God of heaven. But then he goes from talking about the God of heaven, he says, oh, Lord God of heaven. He used the word Lord there, of course, which is all caps there, which points to Yahweh, the covenant one, the sovereign Lord. And the great and awesome God, this is good right here. Because, see, you could pass this joint by right here. He said the great and awesome God, booming right here, right? Now, great and awesome really here. See, see, we use, like Pastor Larry talked about a few weeks ago, how we use a bunch of words in our normal conversation that we give subsidized categories to how we use them. Like we see somebody, your hair looks great. That outfit is, man, that's awesome. Mm, man, they did a great job. But it's interesting that Nehemiah puts great and awesome together. Because in the Hebrew, it's what's called a hendiatus. And this is put together to give potency to the meaning of how high he believes God is. Now, let me see if I can break it down. The word great here means important. It means pertaining to having a high status by a consensus of other persons. Pertaining to causing surprise and astonishment in view of being important and unusual. The greatness of God is to be extolled in all places, one verse says. In several instances, in several instances, it's all about how great you are, O God, in Psalm uh, in 2 Samuel 7.22, God's power is talked about as great. In Numbers 14.17, God's name is talked about as great. Uh, 2 Samuel 7.26 in his work in Psalm 92.5. So, so God being great here doesn't mean great job, buddy. What it means here is that God is uniquely great beyond everything. Let me see if I can make it plain. See, 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 in order for something to be great, based on the definition of it, to be strange, causing a surprise or astonishment, that means it uniquely pierces the natural. That's what it means for him to be great. That means, literally, that's the meaning of a miracle. Miracle means there are natural laws, and somehow someone, something, or someplace came in and superseded those natural laws so that you can look beyond the natural and look to the one who's above it. 
Yeah, and so, and so God, he's, he's talking to the miraculous God. Let me see if I can make it plainer. I know, I know uh, Oprah Winfrey not on no more, but one time I was watching the show. One time I was watching the sh- her show, and um, this little boy on there was tearing this Stevie Wonder song up, like in a good way. Little boy was, you know, singing the singing song and getting his little sing on and, and going. You know what I'm saying? Then the curtain behind him opened up, and then money turned around and, and jumped back. Because he was like, yo, Stevie's singing. Stevie was like, he was, you know, Stevie Blind, but he was like, keep on singing. They, they sang the song together and got it in together. You know what I'm saying? They got it. Then after the song was over, he's like, Dag, I can't believe this. Why? Because he was doing his own natural activity. And somebody behind him came out of nowhere that he didn't expect, but that he respected. And came into his circumstance and interrupted it and blew it away. See, when it talks about God being great, it's talking about God being the divine interrupter. In, in other words, God will come in in a way and you won't realize that it was him until you turn yourself around and look at the fact that it was God that was active. See, God loves to enter natural circumstance with supernatural power. And because of that, Nehemiah understands that. So Nehemiah says, great and awesome God. But it's beautiful because the word awesome here is the Hebrew word yareh, which means to fear. But, but it's translated awesome, pointing to The idea of fear being to stand in awe of the reality of God. So you put them two together, you're talking about standing in awe of the reality of the one who can supersede the natural through supernaturally intervening in circumstance. That's who he's praying to. I wish I had some help at the second gathering. And so God wants us. God is helping us to get our minds through Nehemiah, our minds heavenward, heavenward, heavenward. But not only is he transcendent, he's imminent. Because he says right after this imminent meaning, he breaks into circumstances. He's not just above them. But even when he breaks into the circumstance, he stays above them even though he's in them because he doesn't bring himself down to circumstance. Look at the, look at the verse. It says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. The word there for steadfast love is chesed. The word that means God's loyalty. God is loyal in a mug. Loyal, loyal, loyal loyal, loyal, loyal to the triflingest people on the planet. He's loyal. This speaking, see, he's, he's talking about, see, he's setting God up. That's what he's doing. He's setting God up. See, he's, you, he's naming the attributes of God that he's going to need answer to prayer in usage later on in the prayer. So in the beginning of prayer, he starts saying, God, you know you. God, you know you. You know you. But then he, when he gets in the blaster part, he's like, I'm going to need that attribute here, though. <laughs> but God ain't fooled by it because he likes it when we pray like that. He likes when we put faith in who he is to show off what he does. And that's the way he works. You know what I'm saying? That's the way God works. And so, and, so, and so Nehemiah is talking about God's loyalty to keep covenant unconditionally, even beyond when I break it. He's saying, God, he, he said, I already know I'm about to get into some stuff, God. And so you're loyal to your covenant. You're loyal, matter of fact, to me. And I don't know if I have anybody in here that God has been loyal to, but here up in this passage, he's talking about God's graciousness, his goodness, his faithfulness, his divine hesed talks about, it's almost an untranslatable word, so you just name a lot of words to help try to define it because that's how massive God is in relation to this word. Um, matter of fact, the old King James, old school joint used to say loving kindness. It just made up a word. You know what I'm saying? The King James translators was like, man, I don't even know how to translate it. What you think? What you think? You know, he's like, 
He says, it means love. He said, it means kindness. It means good. He said, all right, loving kindness. I guess so. So they just translated the joint. They didn't have no way of putting them together, putting words into the loyalty of God, how loyal he is to his people in the midst of your failures. In the midst of your frustration, in the midst, and that, see, you're going to need that. See, I know some of y'all ain't been through enough, but you need to be, you need to be through something where you need God to be loyal to you. See, I know we like loyalty to our friends. We got all these little cliques, you know, in, in, in hip-hop and everything. Everybody got a click. You loyal to the click and all of that, and you can't say nothing about him on YouTube or Vimeo or whatever. You know what I'm saying? But God, look, see, God ain't got all that. Well, I got to explain. You capping, hitting back at cats and videos and stuff. See, God loyal. God is a loyal God. That's, that's why, that's, that, he's not your road dog, but he is loyal. Amen. So the essence is he's coming to God by faith. That's the essence of what he's doing here. It's coming to him by faith, which we'll talk about later. But then he goes on in his prayer, and, and, and this brings us to our next point. If you're going to be rebuilt through an encounter with God, you've got to be rebuilt through encountering God in confession of your sin. So you got to acknowledge who God is, but you also got to acknowledge who you are. You got to acknowledge where he is, and you got to acknowledge where you are. Now, this section is going to be a little rough, but the church needs to hear about sin. Can't just talk about prosperity and purpose and getting out and getting up and going into a new season. You're not going to be rebuilt to go anywhere until God deals with your mess. So, so, so we're going to get it at some rugged, nasty, trifling, dirty, raggedy mess. But the beautiful thing about being a Christian is you get to deal with it with some hope. Because if we confess our sins to God, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So you go into God's presence boldly. This is interesting. God says, come before me boldly to snitch on yourself. Snitch. But what's beautiful about snitching is you find favor. Oh, I wish I had some help. So confessing in this text means to throw or cast something down. That's what the Hebrew word for confess means, to throw something down. You know what I'm saying? I remember when we play, um, when we, when we play basketball in, in the alley, in, in D.C., we had, them, we had bigger alleys than y'all do in Philly. We, we'd nail a, wood, a piece of wood up there and then put a milk crate, crush the bottom of the milk crate out, put it up there. That was our basket. You know what I'm saying? Then we got the little basketball because we ain't had nothing. You know what I'm saying? Some of y'all had rims and gems and stuff. We ain't had none of that. So, so man, when, when, you, when, when the dude is out of bounds and he about to put the, put the ball in, if the guy jumps, uh, jumps inbounds, you get to hit him in the, in the legs with the ball. Or, like when we playing throw-up tackle, we ain't had no football, so we get all our rentals wrapped together during lunchtime. Y'all know nothing about that. Ball, the rentals wrap up, and now when we throw throw-up tackle, you throw it up, and then whoever catches it, you don't got to get it and run to, the, run to the goal. But we had to, when we played teams, when we played teams, we played teams, a dude was, the dude was standing at the line of scrimmage. And so you be the quarterback, and he had to count. But he get to go to the one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi. But if you jumped over before he got down, you could hit him, and then it's your ball again. See, he, you cast it down at him. See, that's what this is. Confessing your sin is casting down your sin before God, spiking it before the king. God wants you to spike your sin before him. It, it means, confessing means acknowledging that you're a mess. 
Because there is no rebuilding anywhere in your life until you know where you at. You ain't going nowhere. I like the way Proverbs 28, 13 says it. It says, the one who covers his transgression will not prosper, but whoever confesses, listen to this, them and forsakes them will find mercy. Confesses and forsakes. Some of us just say we're wrong, but we don't really believe we're wrong. And, and so, so, so when you confess and forsake, it means that you're taking into account, not that I'm just saying it's wrong, but I, but I believe honestly that I'm wrong, and God, I want you to enter this thing. But it's interesting. It says who else, the one who covers his sin. That means you hide it from people. Okay? But what's beautiful is, is that when you let God deal with your sin, he covers it. Because when he covers it, it goes away. When you covers it, it grows. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, so, and so what's beautiful about when you take your sin to God, God wants to cover your sin. But when we cover our sin, we're just making more room to keep doing it. So Nehemiah is coming before God, and he's like, he's like God, I, I want to confess my sin. I want to confess. Now look at how he confessed. It's very great details about how he confessed his sin. It says, it says, he says, let your ear be attentive, verse 6, and your eyes open to the, hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of who? The people of Israel with which we, uh-oh, he didn't say them. They messed up. They tore stuff up. But what was so powerful is that he's confessing all close to 100 years of sin. In other words, he wasn't alive when the sins began. But he's confessing the sin as a participant in it because he's benefited and walked in the sins of his forefathers. We got real quiet on that part. So, so he, said, he, said, he said that we said, he said, so I'm not blaming anybody else. I'm not going to just put the onus of the need for confession of sin on anybody else. Lord, include me in the need to confess my sin. But then he goes further, and he makes it more plain. He said, which we have sinned against you. Even I, uh-oh, he uses the personal pronoun. He goes from plural pronoun that includes him to personal pronoun that says, I am individually included in this bunch. And he said, in my father's house. Now he starts asking for forgiveness of generations of sin in his crib. He, then then, then look, look what he does, though. And we're going to break this down real nice like in a second. He says, we have acted corruptly, very. He didn't just say corruptly. He said very, very corruptly against who? You. And have not kept your commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. In other words, we ain't done nothing. Nothing. He, he holds himself and others comprehensively responsible for messing up. That's beautiful. God's not going to use you until you tell it all. Uh, until you fully. Now, don't tell just the. See, you tell the beginning part. But it's a lot of the. It's a lot of. It's all this under here. But you say, well, all I did was, you know, and then you keep it that deep. And, and, and there is no repentance for confession. This must sin. That means you're still trying to conceal. But when you're trying to confess, you tell everything under the ocean. Why? Because you want to let God know that you're fully repentant of what you've done. 
Why? Because healing doesn't come until you have a tell-all. Many of us need to get us a tell-all with the King of Kings. That's the way you get rebuilt. You get rebuilt by tearing yourself down. Paul says, I beat my body. Some of us, we like to beat other people's bodies. Ah! But not our own. And, and, and I'm praying that God would tell us, like, like, expose us, God. Put us on blast for your glory. So he's saying, we've been comprehensively unfaithful. So let's, let's make this real plain. Let's bring this down to planet Earth where we all sit. I'm going to name about four sins of our city. Now, what's interesting is he's talking about the community's sin as well. Because he, he doesn't just want to get rebuilt himself. He wants all of the people of God to be rebuilt. So the first sin, I, the, the, there's a, the, but there's an obstacle many times, which is really a sin. And one, it's the first sin that Adam committed after sin came in the world when he sinned. Blame shifting. Blame shifting is a dangerous sin. And, and, and this is going to involve, and it's going to get ethnic too in here in a second. When I say ethnic, I ain't talking about getting Negro. I'm talking about, I'm going to talk about black people and white people in a minute. Because there's some stuff we need to talk about as a church that we don't talk about. We like being multi-ethnic on Sunday, but we don't want to talk through some issues on Wednesday. And so, blame shifting. I looked it up, and it's sh- blame shifting. Shifting the blame is the oldest tactic known to humankind for avoiding taking responsibility for your own actions. While shifting the blame seems insecutious enough, it's deadly. Consequences he lays out of blame shifting. See, that's what people who have been oppressed seem to do, these first two sins. The guilty person escapes taking responsibility, thus never changing their behavior. With behavior never changing, old patterns continue. See, this is the gospel. Shifting the blame. See, the gospel demands we don't do this. Shifting the blame combined with old dysfunctional patterns create chaos. Altering the conversation from the guilty person's actions onto an innocent party. See, that's blame shifting. Blame shifting is saying someone else is wrong. I'm not wrong. So I don't confess my sin because they've sinned, right? The innocent party feels false guilt from the shifting of that responsibility. True repentance or turning away does not ever occur because people who blame shift leave people in their lives polarized, feeling manipulated and will cause them to write them off as spiritually manipulative. See, one of the things that we're going to have to deal with is we're going to have to deal with not blame. See, most of us say, God, forgive me of my sin. And then we, but we don't, we, we blame shift and blame others in our lives for stuff that we need to confess our sins for. One of the things that's, that, that, that this is a big one of oppressed or poor folk. Especially poor black folk. It got real silent, didn't it? See, we, we like to blame shift the white man's fault. I remember, I remember one of my neighbors was telling me, man, they offered an opportunity in this neighborhood for people to buy any house they wanted for $1 that's owned by the city. One person showed up. But that's the white man's fault, huh? But you had an opportunity to own a lot. Now a house across the street going for 400000 
but that's the white man's fault. It got real quiet when we started talking about some real sin at you, didn't it? The second one of that one, though, is victimization or the victim mentality. Now, it's different from blame shifting, right? Because this is different from being oppressed. The Lord, of course, would affirm that a person as a victim, if they are a victim of something, but will not overlook sins that are in response to being victimized. See, some people say because I was abused, I have a right to sin in response and God can just cover my sin. But see, uh, uh, see, although God empathizes with the abuse, he does not empathize through an ungodly response to it. So he doesn't say, I exonerate you for your sin. No, that makes him unholy if he doesn't use the cross to deal with the sin. <laughs> so, 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 so what happens is, is we develop a victim's mentality. That every, that, and, and people who have a victim's mentality has an entitlement mentality that somebody owes me something. But uh, uh, and, and, and so, and so in, in this idea of helping a, a, a city to be rebuilt, a continent to be rebuilt, and God's people to retake their role in representing his reign, we got to take responsibility for our sin. I got to keep moving. Next one is racism. Racism, a belief or doctrine that inherently, that, 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 uh, that inherent differences among various human races determine cultural or individual achievement, usually involving the idea that someone's race is more superior than another one's. Usually racism is, can only be done by a dominant group of people, not an oppressed group of people. Did you hear that? And so, and so that means as we go into this one and the next one, we're going to have to work through these things as a, as a ministry. Because they're, 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 all of us, white and black folk, and I know we got Latinos, some of y'all mixed, some of y'all still trying to figure out the Irish, the Polish, the black. The, I got Indian, I got Indian Cherokee, and I got some, uh, y'all got all kinds of things up in you, so you don't know what you are. But I want to talk to just the black and the white folk real quick. <laughs> just the black and the white ones and the mixed ones that you are both, right? So you can kind of work with both of them as a hybrid, all right? In order, in, order for this, in order for us to do real biblical ministry around here and in the world, the church is going to have to deal with its community sin of racism. It's going to have to deal with it. And we're going to have to confess. And you can't say, I was born in 82. So I, I have never, ever, ever, ever called anybody that N-word. I've never done it. But Nehemiah, Nehemiah didn't do that. Nehemiah didn't say what he didn't do. He included himself because he benefited from their sin by confessing his sin. Matter of fact, even he didn't make himself a victim, black people. Why? Because this dude was probably castrated. How do we know he was castrated? Because he had to be around Artaxerxes' harem. Fine chicks everywhere. Booming from multiple countries. Booming video vixens up in the joint. You know what I'm saying? He walking through Nehemiah. He said, first things first. He said, get him out. Dude, bring out the shearers. Schwakokis. It was off. And so he was castrated, and the removal of his area was removed so that he wouldn't get it in with none of Artaxerxes' honeys. You know what I'm saying? So that he can have his mind right when he go up in there, right? So I'm talking about into the place to serve him, all right? And so, and so it's very, very important to understand he could have acted as a victim. God, you know what I'm saying? Why you, got, um, you put me in this situation? You got me cash right? He could have been a victim. He didn't do that. He didn't do that. And see, we need to start owning our sin. All of us, every last one of us, white and black. I'm talking to white and black people mainly. 
I know that Chinese and Korean people have issues with each other, and uh, Southern, um, Southern uh, 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 Latinos and Caribbean Latinos have issues. So there's a bunch of racial issues that have to be dealt with, but it's a sin issue there. Because if black people think we're better because we're cooler, generally, um, <laughs> I'm just saying, all of us, everybody ain't like that. That's a stereotype. Some of us, you know. That boat missed us. Amen. <laughs> you know, I'm just saying, and we need to confess, and we need to be confessing, we need to be confessing, white folk need to confess the sin of racism. There's racism. Every time you walk out your door out here, you see it. Every time you see something being built, it's racism. Yeah? And, and I'm going to talk about it in a second. Every time you see something built, we're going to see white privilege. I'm going to define white privilege. Some of y'all don't believe in that. It's both that exist. Now, I know as a black man, it's hard to hear from a black man talking about white privilege. Some man Pastor Larry preach on it next week. All right, so. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> Pastor Larry says, why do I always have to be the white default here? It's so racist, right? Um, <laughs> but but, but I'm, I'm saying that to say we're not going to become a real community until we can sit in a life group and you can tell somebody black, um, I, I got to confess a sin to you. I do feel like black people are lazy. Now, if you don't get hit, <laughs> which you shouldn't, amen. I know all the black dudes, gonna be, they're going to ball up their fists, so just know. <laughs> all the black dudes and, and all, the, all the women are going to do like this. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I have a degree from, they're going to roll you down the line, right? Like Claire Huxtable. But um, you need to see, I feel like white people always want to run everything. Y'all know we say that when we buy ourselves. Huh? 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 What? Act like you don't. <laughs> Everybody has said something sinfully unethical kingdom-wise with people of their own ethnicity that we need to repent of. Because we can be multi-ethnic. I go to a multi-ethnic church, and everybody, there's different people on Sunday. But if God doesn't allow us to deal with and confess the sins, we won't be the type of community we need to be to reach the city. We won't be. Because we'll be living a lie, and the people who are out there will see it. We'll see it. So we shouldn't have an idealism about our relationship with one another. We got to face the reality of the sins of one another. What, what, so, so, so why am I saying this? It's, it's a great application of this text, and it's the center of the gospel. The gospel isn't about racial reconciliation. Let me just say that. It's not about racial reconciliation. But racial reconciliation is an application and, and, and a res right response to the gospel. Why? Because we've been given the ministry of what? reconciliation. But everything we do isn't about racial reconciliation. We're not going to have a conference on racial reconciliation. There have been enough of those. We need to now get off conference tip, get in each other's lives, and confess some sins, and let God work through it, and let's see what's true and what's not true. I'm still in the book. We need help with it. We need help, 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 help with it. White privilege is the attitude of thinking that because you're not functioning in the application of the sin of your forefathers, that you're not executing the sin of your forefathers. 
Okay? Okay, okay, okay. So, so that's very, very, very important. That means benefiting from it. Now, somebody said, well, I, I don't think that's right. I'm not directly doing anything. But Nehemiah wasn't either. And Nehemiah said, me too. I want to confess, really, years of sin all the way back since my crazy ancestors in the wilderness in Numbers. He said, we've been acting, so we've been acting a fool, God. We plus me. All right. And so when you come, when you're going to if you're going to be rebuilt to build, you got to go to crevices of your life where you're afraid for God to speak into. That, that's that's what it means to confess sin. And that means he's going to rake out. You're going to see some ugly things. But what's beautiful is God will cleanse you of all unrighteousness through Jesus Christ. That's the beautiful thing about it. So we don't, we, don't, we don't go into confession not understanding that transformation comes. Because look at the last but not least thing that Nehemiah does. Last point, and then I'm out your way. Rebuilt through encountering God, finally he encountered him by faith. Verses 8 through 11. He says, remember your words. Stop right there. That's the best way to pray. When you start talking about God's word, he talked about his attributes. He talked about... He acknowledges God's attributes. He acknowledges God, our sin. But then he acknowledges what? He acknowledges finally. He acknowledges finally his word. The best thing you can do is pray God's word back to him. Well, that don't mean nothing. No, you pray it back to him. He begins in principle. He's already been praying God's word back to him. Because he said, we have acted corruptly and we have not kept your laws. This is stuff that was talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Deuteronomy chapter 18. It was talked about in, 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 in a multiplicity of places in First, Second Chronicles uh, chapter 6 and chapter 7. He, they talked about all of these different issues in these passages. But he, he says, he said, this is what you said in your word. Now, I'm just telling you what you said, God. That you commanded your servant Moses saying, if, we, if, if you are unfaithful, talking about us, which we are right now, basically, we're unfaithful. He says, I will scatter you among the peoples. We're here right now, God. So, so we live in, in light of your word right now by default. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them. So now God has commanded them to leave. Ezra's going to uh, take a battalion of people from, uh, from uh, uh, Persia, Persia to um. Jerusalem, Nehemiah is, and then thirdly, Zerubbabel will later. So they begin being faithful to the word of God, right? And Ezra will say over and over again, as God was taking them, the, hand, the good hand of God was on us. I like that. And he says, he says, though you are dispersed under the farthest skies, I will gather you from there and bring you, them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell. In other words, God, you told us that if we wild out, you'd get rid of us for a little while and give us a whooping for a season. But then if we repent of our sin, turn back to you, you will give us your presence all over again. Matter of fact, I like this is a reflection of John chapter 1, verse 8, and it's verse 14. And it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. When, when, when the name here that's dwelling with them is the name Yahweh. But the Bible says over in Philippians chapter 2 that God has taken the name Yahweh and inserted it into the name of Jesus. He says, so that in the name of Jesus that every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So now Jesus fully fulfills what it means for God to dwell among his people. And so now that you're a believer and you have Christ in you, 
he dwells among you. So Jesus more fully fulfills this. So now we have unending, uninterrupted fellowship with the living God. Now, now discipline is not even necessarily get shipped out to a land. Now discipline of the Lord is done with the Holy Ghost in your heart, which is worse than anything ever. Now you got the Holy Spirit making you uncomfortable. You're just like, ah. I like, like, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, now, now you got it. But, but what's beautiful about it is he's moving in your heart to turn you back to Jesus. That's the goal of this. And to turn us, and that's why he leads us into truth, the word. So he says, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed. I like that. Brought them back, God. And brought them to be bought from the wrath of God by your great power and by your strong hand. It's interesting in the Hebrew thought. As we close, the fingertips to the elbows are your hands, right? Are your hands. That, that, the fingertips to the elbows. That's why when Jesus Christ died on the cross, it said he was pierced through his hands. Even though it was wrists, in Hebrew thought it's his fingertips to his elbows. It's interesting that it talks about here euphemistically that God has delivered us by his strong, God, his people by his strong hands. Because in uh, 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 Isaiah 53, verse 1 and through, one, and one through three, it talks about who has the arm of the Lord been revealed to? Well, who is the arm of the Lord in that passage? Jesus. Ultimately, Jesus brings deliverance. Nobody else. Nobody else. God is not working through anybody else but Jesus. And he goes down and he says, oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to, pr to the prayer of your servant. And to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. We like to stand in awe of you, God. And give success. That means to thrive, the Hebrew word there. To your servant. In other words, God, we want to stop surviving. We want to thrive. He said, your servant, he said, and grant him mercy. I like this part. In the sight of this man. That's good. Because Xerxes was seen as a god. But, it, but he would never go before him because he said, oh, live forever, king. He got to go all like that. But in prayer, he says, give me favor in the sight of this man. That's the force of the language. He's a man, but I'm before God. No matter what man is doing in my life, God, I want to recognize that he is only who he can be. And the, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he directs it where he wills. No matter where you are in your life, no matter where you are in your life, Man is not sovereign over your life. Remember, circumstances are what they are, circumstantial. But when the king of kings pervades over it, and you recognize him as transcendent, yet imminent, over your circumstance, but in your circumstance, but because we're in Christ, he's in us. He's over our hearts. And he's in our hearts. So set aside the, the Christ as Lord in your heart today. Based on 1 Peter. And he says something beautiful here. He says, now I was the cupbearer, second in command to the king. In other words, God, I am going to leverage my exaltation for your exaltation. That's what we're going to talk about next week. See, God is not going to rebuild some of y'all until you learn how to be humble. Because God always wants to be the biggest deal in your life. 
And he will not give you exaltation if he knows you're going to be the only one exalted. <laughs> and so Nehemiah is saying, I'm the cupbearer. I'm about to go before the king. And God, I'm going by faith. Now, listen how he started this prayer. He started this prayer morning. Now he's coming out. He said, whoa, I done been in God's presence. That, something, something's different about me now. God, I'm going before the king. I'll be, I'll be back. And he, he's gone now. Why? Because we need to get an encounter with God. If you're a believer in Christ, you are able to encounter him. But you're not encountering for yourself merely. You're encountering for God's people and for his glory. Father, we honor you and thank you that you are rebuilding us to be builders. And we can't be rebuilt until we're broken down. Lord, break us down. Destroy and assassinate everything in us that is not like you, God. Impact our recklessness to serve sin and Satan. Lord God, help us to pursue you. Help us to have encounters with you. It's something about having an encounter with God that changes everything. It's something about knowing that you've met with the king. <laughs> um, and and I, I, pr I pray, God, that we will be a community that experiences and recognizes that we've met with our king. And, God, give that as a reality as we pray a walk next week, as we spend time with you this week, as we uh, pray more. I I'm blessed by us praying so much more in our life groups. Help that to be a time of encounter. Help that to be a time of fresh confession. Help us to open ourselves up, Lord God, to you and to one another. Lord God, and help us not to unrighteously judge one another as we confess some of these sins this week. God, we thank you that Christ covered and took care of every single, every single, every single solitary sin in our lives. Jesus, be the hero every time. Be the hero in our lives and be the hero in our hearts. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Let's prepare our hearts and minds for communion. Men, you can come on down. Communion is a time to celebrate. We have it every week. We celebrate uh, the death of Christ.